Welcome to the 20th episode of the Animal Riot Podcast, brought to you by Animal Riot Press, a literary press for books that matter. It's your producer, Katie, here, and this episode has been edited to reflect our new name. If you're new to the Animal Riot community, welcome, and you can find out more about us at AnimalRiotPress.com. Now on to the episode with your host, Brian Birnbaum, and today's guest, Linda Silva Johnson, a.k.a. Eli and Kate Meister. I'm your host, Brian Birnbaum. We're here today with Lynn DeSilva Johnson, a.k.a. Eli, founder and creative director of The Operating System, interdisciplinary creative practitioner, cultural scholar, and assistant professor at Pratt. We also have, for the third and certainly not last time, the wonderful Kate Meisner, director of the Prison and Justice Writing Program at Penn America, author and illustrator of the collection of poems Let It Die Hungry, published by none other than The Operating System. So welcome. Anything you guys want to add to your, I don't know, introductions to (laughs) this little universe we have here? Well, we can let the listeners in on what we were talking about just before we started, which yes. was the inadequacies of biographies and how to decide what goes in them. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, uh, I, I deal a lot with the idea that words are, are actually like very problematic, very inadequate, and also just sort of stand in as this. Oh, I could not agree more. <laughs> I've, been, you know, I've been doing a lot of like research on the brain and how it functions and just like in terms of just like metaphys- like our metaphysical reality, we're, like language is just so limited. The more you go, the more you like think about yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's unbelievable. So my even like taking of a different name had to do with the notion that you could create a name for yourself, right? Mm-hmm. That like we have these names that stand in for ourselves and that those things come with all of these associations and that like there actually is the ability to sort of like rewrite that. And a lot of what I work on is like a sort of self-hacking and, and, and body hacking and mind hacking, like both for myself and other people. And oh, wow. what does it mean when you change your name? What does it mean when you decide to call yourself artist versus creative practitioner? A creative mm-hmm. practitioner is a little harder, mm-hmm. but artist has a lot of associations that I don't necessarily want to call forward. I work, I work across many mediums. Artist, I think for most people, makes you assume that I'm talking specifically about visual art in the two and three dimensions. And I also work in sound and I work in performance and blah, blah, blah. So, so that's is that your association with art? It's not necessarily like literature. You don't think of literature first when I you think of art. I do, but when yeah. you see a bio, if it said, you know, Linda Silva Johnson or Eli artist, mm-hmm. would you assume that I meant that I worked with? Tess? Yeah, because that's a pre- <laughs> because that's pretty broad. No, you're right. I, I my first thought would definitely not be like writing or like you know I don't know something that's not sculpting or like painting. Yeah, that those would be my, my the first things that come into my mind or graphic design. But yeah, but can you can you define a creative practitioner? I guess like uh, like if you can. Just for for our listeners who might think, not be familiar with that I mean, term. I mean, I think for me, it's not it's not an official term, right? It means that I work in creative practice mm-hmm. across a number of creative practices. So and is spaces. it is it, and spaces? Yeah, I mean, so I think that you know, when you're looking for words to define yourself, if you're looking to not you know box yourself in mm-hmm. with things that people do have associations with. 
sometimes bringing in new language, whether it's a name that looks really strange on paper that someone can't necessarily pronounce without asking you, right? Or whether it's, what do you mean by creative practitioner? I'm always interested in things that bring about a question, right? Mm -hmm. Bring about dialogue rather than closing it off. Mm -hmm. So to say that I'm an artist, like someone's not necessarily going to actually ask what kind. They may like have already closed that off when they saw my bio. They're mm -hmm. like, this person is a visual artist. But I don't want to say that, right? Like for me, all creative practice, whatever the medium, whether it's music or sound or visual art or text or, you know, social practice or any of these things are all part of a way of engaging with the world creatively, that you use different mediums in order to do whatever happens to be the right medium at the time. And I think that, Kate's you do this too in a certain way, right? I mean, you, you go across mediums based on like what process yeah. you're dealing with, right? Yeah, for a long time I was working with music, with with poetry. I haven't done that in years now, but it's certainly a part of my history. I ignored doing illustration for years. I have a graphic design degree. And only recently have I begun to bring things together, and actually much in part to your, well, I love to tell this story, because <laughs> I was like, I want just a poetry book. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> you were like, I only want it if it's all of you. And it was a great thing to be pushed towards because in the book, there's illustrations, there's poetry comics, there's poems, there's prose notes that kind of unpack what I'm talking about in the book. And then there is these long, formerly lesson plans, but now just a series of questions. So I think too, you know, and I just added back into my bio, actually, I had taken it out. I put DIY spirited poly creative because I, I, it is so, I'm not just a poet. And I'm not just a writer, and I'm not just an illustrator, and I'm, it, it it it's but we're like blessedly in this day and age where I think that a lot of people are able to be multiple things in their creativity more and more so, but I think we still haven't figured out how to quite talk about it. Yeah, it feels limiting to just say one thing. I think. Yeah, I mean, I think and tricky to package. There's also, I mean, there's also sort of these like histories of legitimacy, right? So it's sort of like what you got to say, who you, who, when you got to call yourself an artist, or <clears throat> when you had permission to call yourself a scholar, or you know. And I think a lot of those things kind of come from the way that we've been taught that like certain levels of achievement that are culturally <laughs> deemed you know acceptable or like validated like that at a certain point you get some sort of permission to yes. use certain terminology in reference to yourself right I mean like are you a published author right I mean the conversations about self-publishing like you know like, are you published? Did you publish it yourself, right? I mean, in a lot of the ways we talk about legitimacy with publishing is like, did someone publish something? Are they a writer? You know, you'll, you'll hear those kind of jokes about questions of like, when you're like, oh, I'm a writer, and people will be like, oh, well, what have you published? Well, have I read it? You know, and it's sort of like, no, well, I, I'm a writer because I write, you know, mm. <laughs> because that's my practice, right? The sort of the professionalization versus the practice is like so, so different. And like, I think the bio becomes a place where you can actually really trouble that by using language that is not necessarily expected and also deciding that you have permission to call yourself things. Yes. And also I think, you know, <clears throat> do you feel like when you're in the classroom at Pratt with your wildly interesting syllabus that you're <laughs> in a creative practice in teaching? Oh my God. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Right. I mean, like I, well, I, 
there's an artist and I can't think of her name, but who, who refers to her art as life art. And she has like, I know one of the people who like keeps her archive and she calls this person and like tells them about like how her chakras are doing and like all of these different humans in the world like keep her archive of her life, which she considers her art. And I was like, oh, I didn't even know that this is a thing that someone could do, right? I mean, and, and it sort of becomes legitimized on some, once someone calls it that, right? But mm. where are the edges of creative practice? For me, there are no edges of creative practice, whether it is the conversation that we were just having, which has to do with like, the body. Kate and I walking here, we're sort of talking about becoming conditioned to certain ideas of gender and the body and weight and health. But why is, you know, creatively thinking about the language that's associated with that and hacking that? Like, that's totally a creative practice. It doesn't have to be published. No one has to see it. Creativity for me is, you know, about challenge and like reframing things, right? Representation is creative practice so it might just be that I'm saying like this is the way that I've languaged this all my life I need to relanguage it but I don't necessarily feel like I need to put it on paper for someone else to read it anymore I think I used to more than I do now but a lot of my creative practices now are much more like internal well you said a great thing to me years ago I've, I've come back to my own mind many a time which was you have to think of your creativity projects really idea wise as a tree with many seeds so you can have ideas all the time, and you should be able to have ideas all the time. And only a few of those will actually plant and grow oh, yeah, into something. I love something. this metaphor. It's a wonderful <laughs> metaphor. It's, it's very permission offering because yeah. you don't have to latch on to every single idea. And I think the, and also the idea of kind of li- thinking about life as a creative practice, also brings me closer to the experience of being in flow which then makes it much easier to do more tangible creative practices if I'm looking at just, it takes the pressure off in some ways around exactly what you're saying, professionalization. And certainly I'm doing a better job working at PEN America when I think of it as also part of my creative practice and as a community artist because there's so much creativity in that role, Mm -hmm. what we get to do. So I think that the borders and boundaries are sticky, but it is interesting because um, in my bio, People always go to PEN America right now because A, PEN America is a shiny name, rightfully so. We do a lot of amazing work. And B, I think that work in the prison and justice space is, is, has exploded in the last few years. So it's very attractive to people or interesting to people or intriguing to people. So yeah, the negotiation of who you are in the world. And if I, if I stayed there, I could get offended. But if I see it as part of my creative practice in the world, then all of me gets to show up there too. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. But then you also get to understand that like people latch on to what's easiest for them to understand. Yes. And so like, or something that like is exciting to them. And so like I recently did a reading at Bowery Poetry Club for this event that they do monthly called Voce. Ars Poetica does it and it's awesome. And there's like one poet and then there's like activists. There was someone from Make the Road who was amazing. There was a comic, there was a musician. Oh, I think my colleague did that recently. Yeah, it's great. Ah. It's great. So I was invited to do this. I was invited as the spoken word person and I came up and I was getting introduced and they inter- it was my reading. But I got introduced as the founder of the operating system. I'm like, this is my writing. Like, that was the only part of the bio that they read. But, you know, I have books coming out. I publish all the time. Like, I, you know, I have all this other stuff that's happening in my life. I, I perform constantly. Like, I'm a teacher, you know. But that's what I get associated with, you know. And so, like, people just latch on to these things. And they're like, oh, that's... That's who you are. Like, I'll literally, I'll do a reading and I'll get off the stage and people will come up to me and be like, how do I publish with you? And I'm like, definitely not like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have to laugh because of it. people are amazing. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, the social, 
the social skills of the poetry world are not always like the best. You don't um, you don't let them recite the first few lines of their book first. I mean, I mean, here, no. go right now. Yeah. Here's go, a mic. Go right now. Give me, yeah. your give, me the, give me the first three, and I'll decide. Go. All right. Now, you know, but I, I do. I think that we. I think that we pigeonhole each other. I think that people pigeonhole themselves. I think that a lot of it has to do with ideas about like success, like you know, even with musicians or writers or something, like once you do become successful, who allows themselves to change and who allow, who doesn't, right? Who, mm-hmm. who keeps doing the same thing? I'm reading this like incredible like oral history of David Bowie and I, I mm. you know, it's, it's really good. But, you know, his whole thing was that like, I'm going to just keep making different music. I'm going to keep going from style to style. And sometimes people really didn't like what he was doing at all. Didn't think that he should be doing these things. And he was like, I didn't care really, you know, because he like continued to be creative. But we often don't really allow that. Right. Like, oh, yeah. I was I was a massive Red Hot Chili Peppers fan when I was in, in high school. I had deep dissonance about liking their later and their earlier music. Like, I had a problem with it. I don't know why. Yeah. I was like, the funk stuff's great, and it's, like, kind of more pure. But, like, this later, like, British pop influence stuff is really good, too. Yeah. I don't, know what to, I don't know what to think right now. And there's all these, like, little Chili Peppers fanboys that are out there. Like, well, you know, they're like, yeah. they're like, no, the, the older stuff is the only shit that's good. Like, you know what I mean? So when you become a public figure, which you are as soon as you start making any sort of work and sharing it, right? You are a public figure. And, I mean, what responsibility do you have to that public to, like, give them what they want? Or what responsibility do you have to that public to make sure that you're challenging them? Like, what does it mean to kind of be a public figure with your work, right? I mean, I think that this is so interesting. What does it mean to be expected to be a poet? Like, the people have people assume that that's what you do, right? I mean, I think that in the last couple of years, the reason why all these words came into my bio was I was like, I really did poetry a lot in the last 15 years because I was really poor, And like the other parts of my practice that are a lot more involved and involve more space and more resources and more money, like I just couldn't do them. And so I didn't feel like it was a loss. I just felt like it was a transition into a period in which I was like, well, let's use this material for a while. It's free, you know, but then like people get really associated with like doing a certain thing. And so I felt like I needed to carve out space for those other things and have people associate me with those other that other language and it's really interesting I mean since bringing cultural scholar back into the way that I refer to myself I've gotten I've done much more scholarly work in the last couple of years than I had for a while well, you ha- who else is going to claim it if you don't for yourself you know and I think I also think that there's different ways of creating and some people are really obsessed with their form and in some ways I have envied that in the past because I feel like I'm all over the map so am I ever going to get great at one thing and I have these I spin in my mind around that but this month I felt like electrically creative in a way I haven't in a while which is (laughs) very welcome keep coming and I've been writing 30 poems in 30 days for April you know National Poetry Month with a group of women so there's some real accountability you don't want to be the one that didn't send the poem because nobody has missed this time around what's what's the punishment there is none, but it's there just, you know, it's just but shame, it's shame. And also, you know, it's accountability. It's a responsibility. Like we chose yeah. to do this together. So show up, even if mm. it's a haiku, you know, JP keeps, keeps saying like, today's a haiku day. I can't. JP Howard, who's an amazing author, also in the operating system and in the writing group is in two writing groups I know. and writes two poems a day for 3030. I don't mm. understand 
and there's been some amazing haikus from JP, shout out. But I also have started writing flash fiction that I've been really excited about. And I'm also working on all these you know, comics and illustrations. And I feel like there's not, I'm like, there's not enough hours in the day. I have so many things I want to do. I'm bursting. And in the past, I would have, I would have really shamed myself. Like, that's not okay. You got to choose a medium and stay there. Right. That was what poetry was. I abandoned my whole early life. And I used to make zines in high school. That was my thing. So that was a mix of visual, different kinds of writing. If you go on Kate's Instagram, there's like these fun throwbacks to images from these zines, which are she showed yeah. show me. Yeah. Alison Bechtel, come on now. Yes, I did interview Alison Bechtel when I was 15 over email. I'm very proud of that mm-hmm. still. And go Alison Bechtel. Seriously. Who was really not, you know, fun home. Hadn't, fun house? Fun home. Fun home. Thank you. Yeah. Hadn't come out yet. Uh, for years it didn't. But Dykes to Watch Out For was pretty popular at the time. And thank you for, you know. Shout out Lesbian Visibility Day yeah. was yesterday. Oh, yeah. And thank you for uh, indulging a 15-year-old Alison Bechtel. <laughs> letting us know who to watch out for. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I think there's, yeah. Well, I mean, I think the thing with Kate's book, which I think is important to talk about, too, like as a publisher, like and thinking about what it means to make space for hybrid work in the world. I think like one of my reasons for going into making books for other people had to do with the fact that I didn't really see this happening Mm -hmm. because the industry often is kind of milk toast you know it, it it's frightened it doesn't really understand its own changes it's not really doing very well with like big data it's kind of like freaking out about changes that are happening and so you know I think that in publishing a lot of people for a long time we're sort of like what will sell right so it's sort of like you're publishing things that are good you're publishing people that you think will sell you're publishing work that you think will sell and again a lot of that just like with the bios it's sort of like what can people grab onto what do they know yeah it's a right? well, yeah it's a very it's a very narrow definition of what will sell you know it's it's like a whatever doesn't scare us into thinking maybe it won't sell yeah, know? yeah. I mean, and, and also to, sometimes it, it, common denominator too. Yeah, you know, yeah, how exactly. many people can relate to this? I had I sat yeah. down with a colleague who's a former agent, who was like, "So I could introduce you to people if you're interested in becoming an Instagram illustrator, because you could do that. You could. I've told you that also. And but I don't want to. I know you don't. I can't do that. I just can't do it. And so, but that's you know. That's what I think about too when you say it like that. Because you would have there's to, this popularity. You'd have to mitigate right your what you were drawing. Like you think you wouldn't because be able to just do Because all that stuff, even though truly you'd become I, this thing, it's like a fetish. Yeah. Well, and all of those these illustration drawing Instagrams that have a little quote or saying that are sort of like safely radical sometimes. You know, Kate's Ruby Cower period. <laughs> right. I mean, I I, I just the, Ruby Cower. I'm not a fan of, but there are other people who are doing it. Less, they don't, I don't think they call it poetry, that I'm drawn to with the aesthetic of. But then I notice that there's an aesthetic that becomes what is the aesthetic of this time. And there always has been that, right? There's always been artist movements. But this doesn't feel so much like an artist movement as kind of a capitalistic, I don't know, I like this distilling down of major concepts that deserve more space and exploration into these bite-sized moments that I do believe help people sometimes, but it's just not my interest to distill down. So I could do it to become more palatable or more digestible or have more mass appeal. But well, so I think that's the question, though. That's that's what I'm asking. Do you think it would change what your work was? 
oh, it definitely yeah. changed what my work yeah. was, yes. And that's what my colleague was saying. Like, I don't think that's you, but you could do it. If you mm-hmm. wanted to, you have the skill for it. But I, yeah. I think about... What does about, it involve? Would, they give, would someone give you, like, a, a prompt? Like, draw this? No. Or, like, something I, like that? Like, how does it work? I mean, people, I think, just make their own stuff. They post it on Instagram. Yeah. They yeah. just make their own little drawing and saying. I mean, that's their creativity, but, it, but there's... There's a similarity to it all. It's an mm-hmm. I mean it's an, it's an entrepreneurial thing as well, right? Because yes. there's like all of these like aesthetic influencer type people who sort of like you know they use Instagram, Pinterest, like all the various sort of social media together as a platform. They have an Etsy, they sell their stuff online, they put it on T-shirts, whatever. Like if you're following something like Nathan Pyle, like the Strange Planet person, like who's you know it's like these alien things that like the aliens talk to each other about daily life and like it's in the last month and a half it's blown up there's like 1.2 million people and there's like all this merch you know Mm -hmm. and it's like it's hitting a nerve right it's hitting a nerve Mm -hmm. it's very digestible it's like funny in a very specific way there's like four (laughs) there's four lines on anyone it's like totally like this is my funny today Mm -hmm. i'm gonna walk away with this but i think like you know and i think that there's a place for that and like it it has changed commerce in a way that i think helps the indie presses right like it helps independent publishing it helps you know it helps uh the viability of self-publishing or community publishing as an actual commercial model right it helps in terms of that and it makes it something that people are more used to happening but i do think that in terms of like what we expect to get in terms of making things very like kind of palatable and pat and well packaged Right. That's a different question. Right. I mean, I think that the operating system, too, has opened up space for the presses to take risks because hybridity and form is uh, now now very cool. And and it wasn't at all. So I think that I don't know where I was going, actually, with the Instagram thing. So thank you for bringing it back around. It seemed like it was in connection with this, this commitment to taking risks and seeing also the role of the publisher again as artist in process yeah that's yeah. I'm, we're the we're the like quickly becoming the only people left that are doing that like as the independent presses and stuff you know i think big five publishing only takes risks if those risky books have already the authors have already been proven in like a previous format you know yeah well i mean that's a lot of like the sort of you know selling the cult of personality mm-hmm. right and i mean then you're buying the person i mean which is why in the commerce of indie presses even with small presses people often you know have a pretty large instagram platform and you, you people do take books from people because that human mm-hmm. is saleable not the work the person Right. I mean, and there's a lot now and I mean, there has been like since kind of the advent of social media, like there's a lot of ways in which like the way individual artists or writers like build their personal platform that has a lot more to do with image. Right. And like the cult of personality than it does that person's work. Mm -hmm. And I definitely know many people that I would say like have gotten many book contracts like and publish all the time not necessarily because of the value of their work but because they're like these kind of visible figures literary sort of figures Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i would say that that's true i mean but like for the os i mean from the beginning it's been really important for us to not like i've 
not taken books by people that people know <laughs> intentionally because I'm always sort of like if someone's if this is going to get published I don't care as much you know mm-hmm. like this person doesn't need this mm-hmm. right whereas like more radical work that is not easily saleable that is between genres that is not in a form that you see very frequently, right? Or that is politically difficult or, you know, radical in some other way. I mean, I think that, you know, like kind of if you trace the history of like anything truly avant-garde, that is what it is, right? It is sort of like making space for things before they're palatable, Mm -hmm. right? And so whether it's curatorially or whether it's with a press or whether it's with music or dance or anything, I mean, it's really people who hold space for things before people understand what they are, right? I mean, in that, I think that history is really important to me. And I mean, I feel like sometimes the, like what I make room for is almost more archive facing, Right. Meaning like I want the book to be in print and circulation. Mm -hmm. I want to make sure that it lands in all of these archives and libraries. But it doesn't matter if we don't make 10,000 of them. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Because the existence of the book, A, changes the life of the practitioner because the practitioner is able to utilize that as a stepping stone, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I can tell you people, like, since having a book on the OS, who've gotten a job, who've gotten tenure, because they have... Or another book. Or another book, or, you know, or gotten all these public appearances Mm -hmm. or whatever because of having something tangible, because Mm -hmm. the book as an object is a very sellable concept Mm -hmm. professionally, right? Yeah, I'm kind of wondering when, Mm -hmm. like... Because it does seem like... the One of the things I do worry about indie press is that and I don't think this is bad, but like it can be kind of like a stepping stone. So yeah, uh, Kate's is eating the cheese. <laughs> I this said is a I wasn't thing going to this she's time. Gonna eat, she's going to eat the whole thing. No, I yeah, can't. I literally will not let you ask. Slap my hand away. <laughs> I'll have a tummy ache. Okay, sorry. Brian, my cheese habit interrupted you. We, <laughs> have, we, have, we have like That's chronic illness woes, so like I will actually not let Kate see the cheese. Do you know what I will, I will, watch what I will do? That's <laughs> yeah. what addiction is. It's like starting to affect me a lot, you know, like the people that you love. It's really. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's true. But yeah, no, I, I like. I have mixed feelings about it, but I think people do not use indie presses as a stepping stone, but by virtue of publishing with an indie press, like they can go on to like some other opportunity. And I do hope that like in the future, like an author that says, oh, I publish with the operating system and maybe they get like some rec- notoriety or something and some recognition. It's really cool if you publish another book there, you know? Well, that's, I mean, that's very much like what we're working towards. Mm-hmm. I mean... If someone can publish a book with someone else and that other press can give them something that we can't give them in terms of like literal like money or resources Publicity, then we are like, like that, please yeah. go mm-hmm. with my blessing, mm-hmm. you know, like very good. But that's the chicken but, and egg thing. It's like you're not going to be able to do that until you get that but more notorious if, author to do another book and then it's like, oh, wow, they're there again, you know, but, which I think would be really cool. But it's a very different thing for me because like even if you were to see our contracts, like our contracts literally have within them, like if you are not someone who's interested in being part of something that's collective understanding that every single other person here is a creative person no one here is a staff right like we are not people that work at harper collins who are editors and do not write Mm -hmm. right like we i mean not to say that the people at harper collins weren't like you know people who hoped at one point they'd be writing but like there is a professionalization of the publishing industry that i am not Mm -hmm. i do not come from this i did not i taught myself all the stuff that i'm doing (laughs) on my own right i mean i think that 
you know, like in our transparent mission driven work is that I want to transform the way that we think about publishing and the way that we think about resources Mm. and the way that we think about working in a radical community oriented way. And I am not interested in trying to be a successful other press because I don't think that what they're doing is successful. Like, I don't care. Like, I never want to be that. Like, I'm not trying to ever get there because I'm trying to teach people about what it means to be collective in the way that you work and use your resources. I want people to self-publish. Literally, like, I think that encouraging people to self-publish and teaching them how to self-publish and teaching them how to community publish Mm -hmm. And all of us supporting that and talking about how legitimate it is, is essential, is essential to the health of all of us as artists. Mm -hmm. Like to try to pull people down for self-publishing is the most short-sighted, most like fear-driven thing I can imagine. Like I think it's actually essential for presses to tell people that self-publishing is amazing. Right. To give people that validity. Like, you know, if I'm right, because we are also artists. No one is going to tell me that my painting is not ready for public consumption. I would be like, go, you know, whatever. I don't know if I can curse. Um, like, yes, but you I can. Okay. So, like, so, you know, so go fuck yourself. You know, like, I mean, like, it's kind of like the what we do with books is very different. Right. But I'm an artist. Like, I make artist books. I did for years. And when my artist book was done, it was done because I made it. Why is it different from when I'm putting text in it? Well, it's I know how to design it. Challenging all the structures that capitalism put up and you know I'm, and it's new yeah it's new those structures are new we right. talk about them as like being traditional like this is how it's always done and now people are self-publishing like that's ridiculous right <laughs> but I love that challenge but it, it does take it out of the conversation of of even being able to compare it to other efforts not to say other I mean I don't think all other efforts are uh are bad but no. I love what you're doing in terms of just rethinking the structure rethinking how we work together, how we think about it, and coming out of the punk rock DIY culture and the hip hop DIY culture, you know, the cardboard breakdancing, mm-hmm. you know, start. I think to me that's a very attractive aesthetic, a way of being, a way of being in conversation. Doesn't mean everything I ever do will be following that path, but I think there's so much teaching that comes from that too. I think there's a line on the website, the operating system website, or is it the Twitter? To call just know. to call us just a press would hurt our feelings. Something like that. Yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot of stuff that says like you know like we're a question, not an answer. It's like it's always it's always posited itself that way. Like I've always been like this is an organization. It is an idea. It's an experiment. It's an organism. It is right. I mean, it was never like I knew exactly what I planned to do either. It was sort of like that's mm. what that was my question. Is like it sounds like. Not that it's aimless at all, but there's no like end goal, right? It's just like oh, I mean, there's many end goals. There yeah, just isn't yeah. one. There's end no goal. single end goal. Which the, with the big press, the single end goal is to maximize. Yeah, but the funny profits. thing is, like, like when you, you know, say big press, we yeah. did over twenty-five books this year. Yeah, yeah, right. So, like, when I'm you're talking ta- about the big five. No, I know, really, but like yeah. when we're talking about like when people say like oh like micro presses, I'm like, do you understand how many more books we're putting out than mm-hmm. like? many 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 really really well-funded small presses we're doing like we're doubling tripling quadrupling what other people are putting out with like way more finances you know so and a lot of that has to do with like how you create an efficient system and like how you 
you know, and thinking about economics in just like a totally different way and understanding technology and like thinking from the system level. Mm-hmm. So to yeah, speak. I'm I'm literally like I can't. I also can't believe that we have done that. It's crazy. Like the numbers are crazy. Like we're it's at amazing. like seventy books or something now. It's amazing. Yeah. How, how many years have you guys been up? We started publishing books in 2013, but it was only chapbooks, and it was four. And so obviously, it's, yeah, it's grown a lot. So, yeah. <laughs> 25 <laughs> books this year. Exponentially. So, yeah. 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 It's a lot. But I also think that, I guess what you were talking about, big five, and like the end goal for all presses is not, I mean, your end goal is not just sales, obviously. No, but we're, <laughs> not, that we're not the big five, though. Right. Big that's five, why was, their end goal is profit. So I was know? circling back to say that's yeah. that I realized that's what you meant. That's why I keep harping on the fact that, it, like, to me, that's why indie presses are so important. It's like, regardless of what your, like, internal mission is, it's like, I, I just don't think really, like, on the forefront, avant-garde, like, experimental, whatever you call, like, innovative work just should be in the hands of smaller presses that are trying to put out that work and are not as worried about the bottom line you know I, that that's to me what the most important thing is oh because, i mean if that because worked. i think literary fiction is it is it's like if you don't fit into this spectrum like you know of like if you use the metaphor of like the color spectrum like if you don't fit into like the ultraviolet whatever it is like that's it because like the or the colors that everyone can see like you know what i mean like mm-hmm. like it should be it just should be everything, but it's not. And that that's why I think it's so important. And I, I would not be upset if like they just gave up and started making textbooks, you know, because <laughs> I think it is our job textbooks at this are point. Super unsustainable. Actually, but, <laughs> but I yeah. mean, I think cookbooks, from, well, I don't I mean, know, I think, whatever makes them their money. I think for me though, right? Like to say that like indie presses are the places where it happens. Like, what does that mean? Who runs them? Like most indie presses are, ultimately unsustainable because they are still top-down organizations. They don't take a lot of time to build in like a functional systemic infrastructure that can be replicated. There isn't a lot of time spent on creating mechanisms, systems, like... Our producers are signing a question right now which, <laughs> that our producers would like asked, which is what does that look like? What is that... What is that in infrastructure look like that that maybe a bigger press would have or you know what well whatever, i mean i don't know. necessarily know if the bigger presses have it either but i mean i think that's something that you see happening a lot is like people you know decide that they're going to start a press and it is based on one or two people running that press and that person has all of the intelligence personally and then when that person burns out or runs out of money or whatever it is that brought them to it, it's then done. it's over. It's, it's over. Yeah, there yeah. is no, there is no systematizing. There is no like passing down those and in, that intelligence. There is no like, you know, what I've been doing in the last couple of years is I'm like trying to mine my own process mm-hmm. so that I have it all on paper so that I can hand it to someone else and be like, this is what it means to run our poetry month series which this year and last year was run by other people which i ran for like the first six years but now i don't have to anymore but the reason that that's possible and then the other person can train that other person right it's sort of like i don't want what we've done to be reliant on me Mm -hmm. right i want it to be an infrastructure that not only can happen here but that someone else can take and start somewhere else Mm -hmm. like i don't even want it to just be the operating system like the whole idea was always to be like what does it mean 
to be able to produce these things for ourselves, which is why I said, like, ultimately for me, it is self-publishing because we are ourselves, the community, and we are publishing ourselves and saying, like, it doesn't, you know what I mean? We don't need to wait for someone else's permission to do that, right? Who is a different legitimizing body. But then you become a legitimizing body and it's a joke, <laughs> right? Which is, like, why I continually try to try to draw attention to that rather than deflect, right? I think that a lot of people deflect that attention. You're like, oh, like... It isn't funny that someone became credible because I put a name on this thing that I started in my living room and then made myself business cards on the internet and became a thing. And then you started treating me like a thing and people would send me emails being like, can someone at the operating system do this? And I was like, someone is literally like me or my cat. Like that's the whole, <laughs> there's no one else here. It's me at two o'clock in the morning, like doing this after my two other jobs. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? But it, but it is, it's this legitimizing organ. And rather than kind of pretending that that isn't what's happening i want to draw attention to be like be like it's ridiculous well and exploded like, a little bit because exploded yeah. and i think explode what exactly which part which part needs to be explode the idea of the the becoming a legitimizing body oh yeah like oh now yeah. you're an authority on what is it, what is cool and good or what whatever exploding the, the idea that that's necessary is that what you're saying or well, expo I, exploding the idea that that's even happening it, that yeah. e that that even needs to be celebrated and i think right, right. you know and i think about i think about the idea of creating blueprints a lot in terms of my day-to-day -day work not in art well in art but yeah. at pen mm -hmm. and thinking about some of the more experimental things we're doing and how do we create a, a map for other people to do it in their city or wherever um because of the the exact same idea of this knowledge sharing and being able to, I mean, it's always better for more people to be doing great things in the world. But there's, I think that this legitimizing thing that then gets turned back around on you after you get a little shine, I mean, there's no escaping it really because of the way our society is set up and structured, but. Well, that's also tough to avoid and I'm having trouble reconciling the idea that if, pe if you do something that people like, they are going to put you somewhat on a pedestal. And legitimize you, you know. So I'm trying, like, I'm trying to think about how. But I think that how that, that would get leveled out, how that would get smoothed out. You I don't know? know that it does in our society, and I, I think about. This I don't know, but I mean, does it? How does it in general? You well, know, I don't, like if, if people if people start to like your books and like what you're doing, you're gonna create something that people think is legitimate. You know. Well, I think the thing is like making. Making it apparent that that process has happened and that it sort of doesn't have absolute value, yeah. right? Like, or it's being, not like a superpower. It's no, like no, it's you, not you, a superpower, but also yeah. that it's available for everyone, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, I think the thing for me is like, and I, I think this with art as well. Like, the sort of muse myth is old. Right. Uh -huh. Like art, a lot of art is work, right? It's yeah. labor, it's oh. practice, it's yeah. process, it's planning, it's, you know, it's discipline. And, you know, and so is this legitimizing thing, right? It's kind of like you too can make a press in your living room and call it something and give it a platform, you know, I mean, and, and it will be just as legitimate and also just as illegitimate as anything else. Mm -hmm. Nothing has absolute legitimacy. Nothing like actually has value. We grant it value and just kind of like, and I think for me, part of it is just kind of saying like, don't let someone tell you that what you have value doesn't have value because it didn't go through that system. It literally doesn't matter. It does not exist. It's, I mean, you know, how, so how, well, how back we, to the language thing, right? Yeah, like yeah. the United States does not exist. 
right? It's an invention. We drew it on a map. It oh my God, edges. this is going to be like the millionth time that I brought this up. <laughs> Have you ever heard of an author called uh, Yuval Noah Harari? No. He's uh, he's this Israeli dude. He's this like, he. I would say he's a historian, mm-hmm. but he's very unconventional and at the same time, like entirely logical. Mm-hmm. And, what, like, what has he written? He's written Sapiens. Oh yeah, my dad's obsessed with him. It's great. <laughs> my dad is obsessed with I mean, all he's a of genius. his books. Yes, he's a and genius. I have them and, on my I mean, what you're talking, uh, what you're talking about oh, is he, like the, what, what, you, what we label, but the, the thing is, and, and th- I guess like, my my question is based off this. His his thesis in in his first book, Sapiens, is that humans basically evolved past other animals because we were able to create language and fiction, especially mm-hmm. these borders that we have. They're mm-hmm. all fictitious. Money is fictitious. Every our whole society is based on laws that are not real. They are just something that we all agree on, right? Yeah. So I don't know. I I really don't know the specific question I want to ask there. I, but I, like it, it, I guess it is. Is that how if we if we are kind of like almost like biologically based on this, like you know this like need to like have these symbols. How would when we you, get around you, them? Well, you, you know? don't get around them. No, you, yeah. you, you, you shift empo- what they are. You become empowered by 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 naming by naming them as named, mm-hmm. right? When you what say, happens to a what happens to a uh, a self published book? I guess let's say like, like you, you know, mean like Leaves of Grass. Uh, I've never heard of that. Walt it's Whitman. Walt Whitman. Oh, Walt Whitman. Yeah. Right. I mean, what I'm saying is like in the modern in in like modern day. No, like, but the point is that is the modern day. Like, I mean, it, it's like a hundred years ago. I mean, like things that are now canonical were mostly self published until right. literally I'm, yeah until literally I'm, I'm completely years ago. So, completely I mean, it's aware just of that. kind of like. But we talk about it as if there is no value, and if like as if that isn't. Well, there's a different know. way there for Walt Whitman for him to be known, or some of those people that weren't known until we picked them up later. You mm-hmm. know. People do have a drive to have their work read. So how does that, how is that reconciled with like? Well, I think that the what, idea what, too is that what what is what is everyone's goal? I guess what should well, be their goal? Well, what do you but, mean? but there shouldn't be one goal, right? Like, who's to say that everybody has the same goal? My if, primary mode of working, and I don't know if Kate's is the same. I mean, my primary mode of working is first of all like reprogramming, deprogramming, like understanding my body as like a human, like yeah, you're talking evolutionary about evolutionary organism. Yeah. You use like, the word hacking. Yeah, I'm curious. I'm curious how you apply that to your life. Because I'm like body hacking all the time. Like you, every single one of us is walking around like an incredibly conditioned person, like, right. you know, like dealing with ideas of ourselves and each other and what we're seeing in the world and what we're seeing in, in school and how we deal with our families and how we deal with our partners. I mean, it's all literally conditioning and mm-hmm. we, which you, means the story is all rewritable and, that we've agreed upon. Mm-hmm. If right? you recognize that you are right. And so if you right. recognize that you are conditioned and you recognize that like, Oh, I've always called myself a woman, but um, what is that? What does that mean? Right. right. I mean like that literally doesn't have a meaning like, and it didn't have the same meaning a hundred years ago or it didn't, doesn't have the same meaning in another country, but it's literally, that's the only thing I've ever thought of that as meaning. And so when I say that word, I hear these associations, right? So like, how do you hack yourself out of thinking those associations when you hear that word, right? Mm-hmm. How do you hack yourself out of thinking that you have to get someone else to publish you in order for your book to have value? Like all of this work, like that's my primary work. And then it's sort of like, okay, I feel like I have the ability as a teacher, as an artist to help other people see that 
right? I mean, I think that I love that word representation as, a, as an art term because when I represent something, I offer them to a different person's senses, actually, kind of um, channeled through the way that I saw them. And so that person has the opportunity to re-see or re-perceive something the way I represented it. And it they might be able to see the world in a new way because I was I did that and therefore self-hack themselves, like their own experience in the world. And I think that that is like immensely powerful, which is why, you know, fascist countries are like so controlling of what we make. Of course. And why art is dangerous. And we're seeing that more and more in our era with Trump, that it actually is the truth because it shakes up those narratives. And I I think biologically we are driven to obviously create fictions all around us, Mm -hmm. but what, who's created the fictions? Obviously we know the historically white men. So all of these things are, I think everybody really. Well, yeah, true. Everybody, but fiction, of course, yes. But the um, the ones we're talking about in America right now, in terms of the conversation we're having, sure, yeah. And and I think that there's just possibility. And I, you know, I'd be inauthentic if I told you that if a big press came knocking on my door, I wouldn't publish with them. I sure as hell would. would. Five seconds, of course, because of course I want my work to be read and to reach an audience. But I think that. It's not about... Kate and I would both take Oprah in five seconds. That's right. Put that O on my book. I'd be <laughs> proud. On. Listen. But I think that I think that the practice of it and the the art experiment of it that you're talking about, you know, this is a question, this is an experiment versus a press, is, is, uh, is not to say that everything needs to become what we're doing, no. but we're putting questions into the world. And I think about that lot, a lot in the prison and justice space where it's like, you know... The goal is that we have something that doesn't look at all, it is not called prison and is much better for humans across the board. That is beyond so many people's imagination, sometimes even beyond mine. Shamefully, I'm working on it. Not that I'm uh, about prison, but that it's hard for me to get there in my imagination around what else could it be. And I think that we need people who can see that imagination and that's their role is to push that, even if it I'll never see it in my lifetime. So I think it's the same thing with Art. It's it's questioning what we've been taught to believe as truth, what we value. Even when we're walking over, you're talking about you know self value and and what do we base that on? Our productivity, the way we look, often in the world. These are all things that are deeply ingrained in all of us. So in a similar way, I mean it's a philosophy on some level too, really, a philosophy in action. So asking great questions, which literature does too. So it's. I think it's less of a question of like, what does that actually look like? Because, you know, we could say it looks like a commune or something, but we also have seen some commune experiences. If you've watched, what's it called? Wild Wild? Oh, yeah. What's it? Wild Wild? A Wild Wild Country. Country. Fucking great. It's an amazing documentary. (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, Crazy. but, But really intense, right? And humanity just rehappens on that land in a really intense way. And I, so I think that you know, part of the practice is not, you know, none of, uh, we're all complicit in the world of capitalism. We, if you buy dish detergent, boom, there you go, right? Mm-hmm. If you live on the grid on any level, you can't, you can't live off the grid. I was just talking about so, this yesterday. So I am a big fan of The Good Place. I've been hearing people of people, I've said just random shit. I can't even remember what I said to prompt it. And then people have been like, have you seen The Good Place? Well, apparently, so, apparently I mean, it's I a think show that I there, I think that there's yes. a real fascination <laughs> right now. I mean, always with myth, but specifically with like what happens after we die and morality. There's like a whole sort of 
little bevy of shows about this. The Does OA. it take place in heaven or something? Is that like what well, what, what the show I is? I mean, I'm not going to, no spoilers. Yes. Hashtag no spoilers. But like, so I mean. In the afterlife. In the afterlife. In the afterlife. So like the good place so the, is. So like, it's like, it, it's in. The good yeah. place is heaven, but there's also the bad place. Okay. Yeah. But so just briefly, like Ted Danson plays like this, like kind of reformed person from the bad place. who's mm-hmm. like learning certain things and like there is an issue where like people aren't getting into the good place anymore. And he's like trying to convince the people from the bad place that like, there's a reason that no one gets in anymore. And what in, he says something, and I think it's really interesting. He says, you know, it's really different to be a human now. And he says something that I, I think about a lot. Like you want a berry, you want to eat berries. So always. like always me too. I always want to eat berries. But, like, we don't have, like, you don't go outside and there's, like, berries growing and you can just pick them. Because we've gone to private property, so probably they're on someone's property. You can't have it, right? Mm -hmm. So private property has been introduced. You can't, you, few of us have room to grow them. And so if you want to get a berry, you have to go to the store. What store are you going to go to? What are the ecological and ethical practices of that store? What are the ecological and ethical practices of the people growing the berries? How do they treat their, you know, their pickers, right? None of us should be eating Driscoll's. Driscoll's is basically like picked by slaves. But I do. Well, and of it's course you do terrible, because but... who can afford it in that cycle? Well, that's right so. Back. I had a, I had a, I had a subscription to Butcher Box because you know I can't, you know I can't stand eating like factory farmed animals. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was. It, it got to the point where I just couldn't afford it anymore, and it sucked. Like it was, and, I, and I, hate, are, I hated making that decision. And I, wide, it was it was that or group therapy. <laughs> and, and of course, there are and, wide swaths of people in the U.S. who don't can't even think on that level, right? You look at food deserts in the oh, South yeah. Bronx, where there's well, not you know people are living and, off of Cheetos. I yeah, mean, shit, shit food. Yeah. So I think yeah. it's all part of the same conversation, and it doesn't mean you're not going to go buy the berries down the store. You know, you know, it, it is what it is. Here we are. But I think that reimagining in extreme ways, which is also created creativity. Yeah creates possibility Mm -hmm. and is also exciting yeah i mean in the last couple of years like i the body hacking thing like i've done a lot of work around like it took kate and i have both like dealt with like chronic illness stuff and like took me a really long time to unpack like where my chronic illness was coming from and for a lot of people chronic illness actually is coming from trauma like we are now understanding you say you're like looking at neurology stuff like the yeah. ways in which like, especially recently i've been yeah I'm, I'm i'm like kind of preparing for this so, essay I'm trying yeah to write, so, so i write a lot about embodied cognition and like how the brain uh-huh. and the body are the same thing and um you know so i've been writing and doing workshops for the last couple of years like really helping people understand like how trauma lives in the body and how like being in a culture that is what you would call bio precarious right bio precarity being like you are constantly aware that like your body is in some kind of danger that like you are actually like physically like involved in the precariousness of your life so like we in the united states have really severe bio precarity because of what we've done to insurance right so like if you know that like if something happened to you or your job that like not only would you probably lose your house, but like none of your your family could get health care. Your parents, your kids, like you. Like if anyone was to get sick, you might all become homeless and bankrupt in like a day. Like, I mean, it's the, these levels of like how close you are to being really in danger puts us in a sense of like, 
panic, yeah. which creates... The amygdala fight or flight is constantly Yeah, you're on. in fight or flight. So, like, <laughs> people are in survival mode way higher up into sort of, like, the 1% versus 99% that we would think, right? Like, people, it's not, like... Like, that is such a true condition yeah. and such a close condition for so many people. It, shut, it, shut, it takes up a lot of cognitive resources. It takes up a lot poverty. of cognitive resources. But it's yeah. but the thing is, it's not only poverty. It, it's not like, just, you right. say poverty, but yeah. it's not poverty. Like, actually, the decision-making factors for so many people about the way that they work and why they work and where they mm-hmm. work and why they're making those decisions because of this looming danger which is so close because so little of these things are actually taken care of and so like we feel really responsible for taking certain kinds of jobs and doing certain kinds of work and you know and being safe right making safer decisions not taking risks not taking personal risks not taking social risks not angering our parents right not you know what i mean and this this uh, works in so many ways. I mean, and I think that, you know, with, for creative people, a lot of creative people often like leave creative work because it is very, it, it feels irresponsible. There's not enough security or yeah. whatever. Yeah. It feels irresponsible, right? And so I think a lot of what I've been thinking about in the last couple of years in terms of that is it's sort of like helping people understand like where it is that they've gotten the feeling that like making art is irresponsible and then making art is like, you know, something that is only for people who have a certain amount of money or is like would be something that if they did it, it would actually potentially put themselves in danger, put their families in danger. I think that's very real for people. And some of that has to do with being stuck in the infrastructures that we have. If you are a writer and you have kids and you have a job, let's say you're a teacher, right? I've been teaching for like a really long time. I make very little. I'm on Medicaid, right? Like just is. But you have a job, you have a great education, you have student loans, you have all this stuff, you have a book. You think your book is great. You submit it for how long? How many places do you submit it? What does it cost? What do you think the average is? People tell me all the time, they're like, I submitted this for two years, I spent Mm $3,000. Tons of time. Yeah. So much time. So much effort. So much emotional effort. Can relate. Can relate. Can relate. Can relate. Can relate. relate. (laughs) But guess what? Like, what if you didn't do that and you and your friends, like, started a press instead? Which is what, wow, what did. That's Which is what I did. What that's, you li- did. that's literally what we did. And, yeah, I mean, it would be nice if it had started. I'll admit that personally, me looking back, I'm like, I'm kind of glad I did go through that adversity. Mm-hmm. But I have a completely different life experience. I have a lot more security than a lot of other people. And so I don't think it's the same thing. I think I was worried strictly about the book. It yeah. wasn't like, oh, I need this book to be published or else X, Y, and Z might not happen. Like, or, you know, you know think about it was just it was just me dealing with adversity on a more personal level. And so that's why I kind of do value level. it a little bit, even though, you know, fuck it. But I hate suffering. But you also learned <laughs> something about those numbers and about yeah, that process that I did. now you can bring to bear on yeah. other people. So experience. I'm a good, yeah, I was a good guinea pig for that experiment because yeah. like, you know, I didn't. I mean, don't get me wrong, I suffered, but like it wasn't life or death, like, you know, where it didn't feel like that bio precarity or, you know, what what, what yeah. you were saying, you mm-hmm. know, but yeah, I can totally, I can totally relate to what you're saying. It's, it's difficult. And also I sometimes, I'm really bad at doing this, but, <laughs> but I do think like if for a lot of people, it's like, oh, I'm either going to be an artist or I'm not. It's like, exactly. it doesn't have to be that binary. Like mm-hmm. you can write, exactly. you can start. I started actually, you know Down what? Down with all the binaries. I'm yes. Not, I'm not that. I'm actually not <laughs> yeah, that bad at this. Mic. I'm not that bad at this. I actually started writing and I didn't like, I really didn't try to get anything published for years and years and years. 
But in the back of my mind, I didn't know that, like, I was like, oh, okay, I do want to get published, you know? But at the same time, like, no, I, I moved to Seattle. I did nothing but sit down for three hours every day and just write. It wasn't about anything. It was Great. about, like, just Sounds me. wonderful. Living, like, being <laughs> alive. No, like, literally anything. And then sometimes I would write a story or, like, I worked on a couple novels and, like, you know. But, like, yeah, no, I mean, like, I think just... Some of it's impatience, but I think it is a lot driven by our society. It's like, no, I, I need to be doing some, something productive that makes money. Like, that's it. Like, that's what I need to be doing. For you me, know? the idea of, like, getting stuff rejected has always... Like, I think I'm just an efficiency person. And so I'm like, this is incredibly inefficient. Like, I, I know that, like, <laughs> like as, as just, like, a logical yeah. person, like, as that, like, whatever, right brain, left brain, which side? Left, left. That part of me, I like, that, so... Is it? It's I left, right? It's left? I don't know. I can never I remember. thought it was right. Oh, boy. Well, we're doing great. No, but the so part we, of No, we've been reading like, up on the brain, trust yeah, me. We, yeah, we exactly. got it. <laughs> but, like, the part of it that's, like, I think about what I could do today. And I'm like, well, I could send this thing out. Literally 99%, it's not going to get accepted. Yeah. Or I can spend the time doing something else. And literally, I always choose the something else. Because why? Because, like, I I mean, literally, it could it, it, it is actually very challenging for me to submit things places. I've been trying in the last couple of years because I'm like, come on, just do it. But, like... Well, you gotta, I always try to create a boundary for it. I have this amount of time, and that's all I'm spending on it. I also just don't feel like I don't know what to say to, like... Like, what's the right thing to say in, like, to a who? query or, like, a, in a well, something? Well, if you don't... If like, you know, like, I, like, I follow the instructions, but, like, honestly, it wasn't until Katie started helping me that I really started getting things published. Well, I mean, like, I know. think that, honestly, a lot of people, like, they're just going into it to publish their work. They don't... They're not sending it to places that they like and are following and they're reading and they like what that person is doing and they really like what that press is doing and they can have an intelligent conversation about, like the meaning of that publication, mm -hmm. right? Like, which is, I think, what a lot of people want to see in a query letter is not that you're, like, there to publish your work, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. that you are engaging into what is essentially a dialogue with the intentions of that publication and, you know, like, in a really meaningful way. I, I have a good question based off that. Mm, yeah. I think absolutely. there's a lot of writers out there who, you know, maybe – they do want to get published, but they don't have the time to like, you know, like I know uh, journals that I like, even ones that I've not gotten published in like Guernica or something like that, you know. But like if you don't have the time to read all of these, but you do want to publish, like what should you do? I mean, you could make that you can then make the time, but like. Well, at least read an issue. It I just mean, feels difficult, you know, for especially well, for people that just, you know, have a lot of shit going on. Well, and, like, you, don't, can't, you can't read everything in the world. It's yeah, true. Right, but right. For example, at AWP, I went and bought issues of magazines that I had been admiring vaguely from afar, but wanted to get to know a little more intimately. Mm -hmm. Now, I just got one issue each, but then I can deep dive and see what it's about. Yeah. And then Guess some what? of them, you I'm like... I also learn that you do not want to be in it. Exactly. exactly. Well, <laughs> well, and that's the other thing. It's like You're once you... find that you were wrong. And there's a lot of other problems. It's like, even if you do want to be in it, it's like the, the chances still are you're not going to get picked. The chances are you're still going to get rejected, you know? So like deep diving in into magazines or journals, you know, liter literary editorials, like it could just be endless. Yeah. And I, you know, I think and you, you might, to... and like you go through so many, like a hundred, let's say out of those hundred, you'd like seven, you know, that you really think fit your work or well, something like that. But you know? what's the point of publish? I mean, you know, sometimes I'll get a poetry book that every single poem has been published already. I'm like, why? Well, I could have just read this whole collection online. There's nothing left for me to discover. Oh, that's not true. I disagree with that totally. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Say why. Well, no, just well, I don't know when it's why when I want Kate to finish what she was saying. Well, sometimes what that what I wonder. I thought there was going to be a staring contest. Well, for no, a bit. Some, I was going to let that happen too. Sometimes, well, I I think I think there's still a collection. I think there's a lot of value in putting things behind covers, putting things in a collection. The curation of it, all of that, has another layer of the art. But I think that it, what it makes me think of is the kind of obsession towards publishing for legitimacy. It kind of circles back to that that original question we have. And then it becomes a rat race. And then it becomes really mm-hmm. feeding into the meritocracy and who's the gatekeeper. But it's not a meritocracy. That's the problem. But I feel like there's also something that has to do with like visibility and access and redundancy. Like we're in a time of like the noise, the, the signal to noise ratio is like bananas, right? Yeah. So like anything you put out in the world, the likelihood that someone's going to see that is like... Mm, yeah, and the more no. you see someone's name. Yeah, so if you have 20 poems out... Like, each one of those is, who knows who's even going to see it? I mean, they go into these different sort of parallel universes, and they each one, each time a new thing kind of, like, hits the pond, like, there's ripples out, and it may reach a different person, and you having seen that one poem, like, may then, when you see that person's book... Like, you'll buy the book, and then you'll read everything else in the collection. That's totally right. I, I think about it as this very sort of synaptic sort of nerve net, like, where people are coming in from all these different places. But the likelihood that that one person read all of those poems in all those different places is extremely low to me. Like, I mm. think, like, each of those poems, like, becomes its own kind of, like, searchlight, like, finding different audiences. Mm. I see that. Yeah. I see that. I mean, and then for me, like, if I did like that person's poem when I read it, I only got to read maybe one or two, whatever was in the collection. And then if I really like their work, sitting with that poem again in relationship to the rest of their collection is a totally different experience, which I get to, like, see that poem or those poems with their practice, like, as part of a larger practice. You're totally right. You're totally right. <laughs> but I, th- I, I think, and maybe it was a bad example, but I think what I was trying to get at is, is your question, Brian, about reading 50 million literary mags. Well, nobody can. And, yeah, and, the, no. and, you're, and then, you know, you, you hop on with, with the saying who, and who actually is reading it. What's the likelihood somebody is reading it once it's published, you know? And I think, and and certainly I'm not anti-publication. I also want my work to be read. I also have journals that I love. I also don't read every single one under the sun either, or even every issue of the same ones that I like, right in a row. No, no, nobody has time. And also there's a million fucking books you want to read in the world, you know, as well. But I think that, I think the question of, of what motivates the seeking publication is probably also a helpful one to ask. Because I think when I think about people who publish constantly or who put a lot of effort into that, maybe they just want to get their work read, sure. And also, but there's a, the validation piece of it, I think is, is something to be examined. As an internal practice, what's my drive to publish constantly? I also often feel like there's a privilege related to that because like having the ability to continually submit means that you have some a lot sort of, time. of you have some sort of resource. I yeah. mean mm-hmm. like time, money for submission fees, mm-hmm. like you know, and I I always I think that that, you know, it kind of reminds us that like people are not coming from an even playing field. Yeah. One one more question because uh, uh, our producers are signaling for a reading. I'm curious. I'm curious because both of you guys said you'd put that Oprah sticker on a book or like, you know, you'd go to a big press. What would that do for you? Well, I think one, 
the potential of a really wide re readership. So mm -hmm. when earlier you were saying, well, isn't the goal to be read? I'm like, oh, sure. I mean, some people's goals are different, I'm sure, but I that is one of my personal goals. I would like my work to be in in relationship with other people, mm -hmm. you know, um, and certainly resources and time. I mean, with money and resources comes the ability to relieve other kinds of work that I no longer may have to do in order to pay my rent mm -hmm. or the freelance jobs I take on, you know? So I think those are two reasons for me why it's attractive, obviously. But I do also imagine myself to be, should I ever be so lucky that if I were to be in that position, there'd be other projects that were not big five projects. So I'd, I'm, I'm interested in existing in multiple spaces too. Yeah, I think so. I think also, I think you totally hit the nail on the head. Like, it's really about like possibility, like what it opens up. I mean, I think that there can be a certain type of snobbishness where people are sort of like, oh, I would never want to like be that commercial or <clears throat> I would never want to kind of like be associated with something that was like that kind of mainstream. Like the idea of being mainstream is somehow like antithetical to like being radical, right? But I don't think that that has to be the case, right? And so, like, if it were to be, like, I would not assume that if you or I, if Kate's or I were to get there, that we would have done so because we, like, sold ourselves down the river and wrote some, like, totally tepid, like, romance novel, right? If we got there, it would be because someone at that level who's, like, is ready to sign on to, like, what we're doing. And if that is happening, then give me that platform, right? Like, what an incredible gift to be able to, like, reach so many people and that kind of visibility gives you all of these possibilities like if I got that like the number of people who would then give to my to my nonprofit would be like through the roof I would right. never have to worry about people giving to my nonprofit because I'd have that kind of visibility and once you have that kind of visibility then people are ready to give to you you know and so but it and it doesn't mean that it would have any more value but people would think that it did and I'd be willing to take that. And I would talk about it, right? It's sort of like when you get that, do you talk about it, right? Do you now say, oh, I got this because I'm a genius? Or do you say, like, it is totally luck that I got this and there's a million people who should get this and here is how I'm going to share the wealth in some way, right? Um, yeah, I, I agree with that. I think uh, the um, <clears throat> the situation is that this is the society we live in. And, yeah. like, there's a, old, there's, there's a former Facebook ex exec who has yeah. a couple good videos about how like his philosophy is like the only reason I'm trying to get money is so I can set up different systems, you mm. know, better systems. And I was like, yeah, that's pretty cool. I mean, it's, it, it becomes one of those things where it's like, it's kind of analogous to the whole like kind of gender conversation. It's like, if you put the conversation within the realm of the binary conversation or the old, old conversation, then how can you ever really change it? So I'm still kind of like trying to reconcile that in my head. It's like, okay, if you're constantly trying to, attain so that you can change do you not sort of sustain the system that was there i don't know i don't i well, don't think i'm smart enough do. to understand no, i think it, in you some know? way you do and, and that's know? what i was saying about the dish detergent that there's actually no way to be fully off the grid and and all of us are going to make sacrifices in our ethics depending on the resources we have at the time depending on a lot of factors mm -hmm. but i think it's about at, right back to asking questions making choices having the conversations about your choices what do you do with your platform, right? right? I mean, like, if you look at someone like, like Jada Pinkett Smith, right, who is, like, using her platform to, like, have these incredible conversations, mm -hmm. like, with her grandmother and her child and, like, all of these guests and, like, putting it on the internet and, 
you know, is sort of like, let's have these public conversations. Mm -hmm. Great. Yes. Like way to go using your celebrity, like yeah. or something like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and no, and despite the fact that I'm, I said I had trouble reconciling it, I do think it is the way to go. And I do think it is, I do think like I have a little bit more optimism about capitalism. Like I do think it is at some point, I hope going to turn into a more like philanthropic capitalism situation, but you know, we'll see. That, and and this is kind of like gotta how we can the hope for this table, my friend. What's that? Yeah, <laughs> you got to hold all the hope. I'm literally not even opening my mouth. <laughs> yeah. Too much. <laughs> I think it's possible. I think it's very possible. I think it's one of those things where like I'm uh, entrepreneur. I'm entrepreneurial, but I wouldn't use the word capitalism. I think sometimes yeah. like I mean, it wouldn't I be, think the word it wouldn't be. You know, uh, it's problematic. Capitalism, you think is problematic? No, the word, like the word capitalism, and like we can't, eat, we don't have another word to talk about, like what money like, system that, yeah, what it would yeah, be, a right? Because because we can't because if, if if we had the word, we'd know what it what it was, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah so it, and that's why yeah. philanthropic capitalism is the best way I can put it. But like it it's is very top down. Uh, yeah, I mean it's. We'll see. I mean, that, what, that's that, a whole other conversation. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm like oh, a lot of thoughts about funding. <laughs> um, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well let's let's do some readings. We won't drag you down that road. Yeah, let's do some readings. It is an interesting conversation. It maybe is. maybe right. another day. Okay, so I guess I was I was thinking a lot about the evolutionary stuff, and so I have this piece. Kate's has heard this probably. The memory of feasible grace. This is a long piece when I hear it that title. was well. It's, I mean, it's not super long. It's a it's a piece that was sort of inspired by Paolo Soleri, who's an Italian architect who did a lot of sort of visionary thinking and who had this kind of idea. He he thought a lot about evolution, and so I I was asked to do a poem about place, and so I made this sort of longer piece about sort of what it meant to evolve, what it meant to evolve in a city versus elsewhere. The whole poem is footnoted. <laughs> So you can go and find it like on my website, but um, I'm not going to read any of the footnotes. I'm just going to read the poem. So it's called In Memory of Feasible Grace. I am the urban mutant, inextricable from this place, four generations before me, strap hanging when there were straps, piecework and factory wages in this teeming, seething anthill where bodies exposed to high temperatures become diamonds if they survive, Visible only if you get far enough away. We are knit of the same fabric, its materials, my materials, its pressures, my native tongue. But the city too is not itself, was never a thing. And so you cannot be the city, even though you are. Since you cannot be the city, you cannot be. Just don't think too hard about it and just keep moving. If you're lucky, a trickster god will get you a good deal on a place in Brooklyn. Not far from train, bathroom, and hall, cozy, good light. Good credit only, no guarantors. Nice girls only, please. Ha ha, just kidding, except not. Except we are serious. Except read between the lines. No one really puts what's happening on paper here. Anyone with power learns that early. If your parents never had any good luck with that, there's no distribution center. Just figure out how you need to dress, what armor you need wear to pass unnoticed, taking furious notes. Sometimes passing unnoticed means your clothes will be loud. These are not the same silences. Survival is the hottest game in town. Every awning says, original rays. Yes, the signs can say, best pizza, even though it isn't, you're catching on. 
Surprisingly, sometimes the best way to camouflage oneself is to stick with the herd. Uroplatus gecko, willow, ptarmigan, toad, common barren caterpillar, stone flounder, great patu, katydid. In the insect world, things are often not what they seem, especially if you're a hungry predator. For 250 million years, insects have survived because they often appear to be something other than what they really are. Is it a bug, a twig, or a leaf? Is that butterfly the bitter-tasting one or the delicious one that resembles it? Here we are the Thracian girl laughing when we thought we would be the philosopher, but fuck who wants to be down a well. Look at the stars alone in your room, on your phone, so that no one sees you falter. Cry because they shine so brightly. Whisper their names under your breath or louder if you can stand it. Eridani, Akamar, Cassiopeia, Ain, Alathfar, Lucida, Apidi, brightest of the town. Sing a song to Ursa Major, Arundati, Alcor, Suha, the neglected one. The shards of Arabic on your tongue, mispronounced, as unfamiliar as these galaxies, and yet as comforting. The city sits on top of the city, which sits on top of the city, which sits on top of the city, and it cannot ever not be a collision, a sordid density where dream calls itself a power bottom. And sometimes it is. Sometimes it actually enjoys it. Sometimes amongst the shut-eyed abandon. Sometimes it remembers itself a dream. And sometimes my fallible body believes in love. Hmm. Wow. I'm going to go back and read that on the website with the footnotes now. There's so many, like... I can't wait. There's so many comments. The whole thing about the Thracian girl and the philosopher. I can't wait. See? Surprise. Surprise. I'm always looking for it. (laughs) Okay. I decided to read these prose notes. I don't know. They're not exactly connected to the conversation we've been having, but they feel in the world of. So this is Notes on Instinct. A documentary came out in 2014 that exposed the plight of orca whales. Their sheer mass, a form of hypnosis, disbelief that such a body could exist on the same planet as our own. With a hypothesis of a higher emotional capacity than humans, who could blame the beast for dragging the trainer through the water, the friend who fed fish for tricks, who created a sideshow? Can one both love this beautiful, breathing thing and also be an accomplice to captivity? Is it better to fight for the whale from outside the arena or pet its wet skin from within the tank? When Ming the Tiger was kept in the home of Antoine Yeats in New York City housing projects, his owner became a brief celebrity on television. He was quoted urging his peers to pursue PhDs, to see themselves on the quote-unquote next level of working with animals as an answer to his own misguided propensity for exotic pets. Alligator in the bathtub, albino monkeys under the sink, elephants in the creek, Lambert the lion escaping through suburban traffic, that last one true down to name. Saw on the news that Cecil the lion was killed by a Midwestern dentist in Zimbabwe, I imagined Cecil rising from the dead under that pink fluorescent sun, a ring of roses strung through his mane, puttying up the potholes, redistributing land, restoring economics, wiping away blood with his sandpaper tongue. Cecil pumped up with laughing gas, cracking up at his own name. 
I won't lie, it is easier, lazy even, to assign a purity to a species that does not bear our particular flaws, alive by instinct, lacking ability to craft a gun from wood and metal or cook food above a constructed flame. When I look across my country, I have to fight the urge to hate all of us equally. I reach deep inside to what is untouched in me in search of compassion for the form in which I arrived. But who will ever know? The lion does not choose its human name. The whale cannot speak to claim self-defense. Ming's claws become enormous when a man's hand holds on. Mm. Excellent. Those are both really great. Are we just going to do one more? Thank you. Or do you, are we done? One more? One more. Okay. Be a long episode. Who cares? Yeah, cut it out if you need to later. Yeah. This, is, this is the unedited version. Like with yeah. On Being, there's like yes. the long one. Right. Mm-hmm. I always like to listen to the long one. Mm-hmm. I never have. Is it worth oh, it? Oh, yeah, it's good. Okay. This is a, a newer one. And I think you'll hear a lot of the themes that we were talking about. It's called Adya. In the smallest box where quiet lives is the sacred animal called body. Stripped naked and awash in tearful wonderment, edges indistinguishable. Here is divinity without retort. The infinite humming of which I am subatomic signal knows itself mistranslated, bullied by inadequate dictionaries for whom it has nothing but compassion. Each iteration in form or passing folded into its exponential experimentations, countervalent reboots, imperceptible waking dreams. Each timeline a gestural recommendation, a phrase. What to do with a knowing whose groundwater relies on the invisible? What to do with milfoy synthetic space-time mesh frames with definitions refusal, with the fearful insistence of the mundane that so often requires our silencing? They closed the book on prophets as though spirit and its messengers could were a thing with beginning and end, forgetting they'd written the story themselves as though any of this could be linear as if between them and they two were only solid objects, as if the unseen was not only not available, but inadmissible, finite, and exhausted by the few familiar, meager graspings that remain to a public whose daily audience with the ineffable becomes so muddied as to be unrecognizable. The leaks in the firmament cannot be trusted. Their days are so dense with required forgetting. Prophet is not a useful word as such, for everyone is and was and isn't and wasn't. As all post-mortem directional hagiography, these words are written by those who came later, these markers driven into the soil by those who identified the stakes. We persist. Amaranthine questionings in fugitive forms, offerings of an organism learning and relearning its plurality. Cord, kipu, calculus, brief orbital returns before further forgettings. It will all be over as over hasn't yet begun. This version is being redrawn as you speak your character, not playing out the way it was imagined. 
You woke up on a different path, unaware. You are history's memory. You are plant's idea of what comes next. You are machine intelligence. You are quasar plinth rarefaction. More breath than bone. More song than flesh. More bird than breast. Your sadness can only ever be a signifier, cosine to unfolding. Call me mountain, joyful, and I will know to sing communion. Hmm. I feel like the poem I'm going to read is, it's not exactly in conversation, but it sits in the same world, so I'm, I'm pleased by this. <laughs> and uh, because of all of our talk about edges, which appeared in your poem, um, this is called Notes on Edges and Other Notes. And also, Brian, this is for you because of your interest in addiction. <laughs> I wrote Great. it when I was working um, at a needle exchange. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. When do you feel most alive? Even those who do not have a nameable passion can understand the feeling of time stopping. Depending on the safety of the space, I can offer the example, what about orgasm? True, heads nod. I stop being whatever I am, transmute simple energy. It's a good writing exercise. What do you become in that moment? A glowing crystal ball, all-knowing. Come on, you can get more interesting than that. My grandpa's pipe smoke, the growl of midnight badger, a funk baseline pulsing below a buried coffin, banging on the walls of a mitochondrial cell you thought I was going to say concrete, a tin can rattling an electric solo through the string. Now we're talking. The first draft isn't that important. We call it shitty just to lower the stakes enough to fill the page without fear. But revising is where the magic's at, of course. Especially the removal of context to save your ass from anyone who can flip fiction to truth. There are levels of desperation in this need. Sometimes, it's just to be kind. But when you write to paper because there is no one to trust, the magic trick is encoded language. To narrate without the cold reveal. Women who miss privacy also miss fucking understandably. When I make love, I am no longer a woman. I can be anyone from anywhere. My breasts are ripe melons or they disappear, sunken like collapsed ant holes. I can fit myself into a vaginal cavity. I can expand a cannon, alien or angel. I'm not of this earth. Everyone brags about how they could make you come or how somebody else made them come. It is a human power we all learn, but it is also a weapon, a sword, a wand, a time machine, a teleportation device, an escape hatch. That kind of high is worth its weight in gold. My body manufactures its own high when I firmly press the button labeled heaven over and over and over and over. Intervenous drug users learn to shoot from television and peers. It perpetuates bad habits. All are clumsy with the needle at first. Blood flow works against gravity. Valves usher blood to the heart like a saloon door. Veins are muscles. My body pitted against a control group. You want to inject in the direction of blood flow. That way it zaps a relief. If the needle goes through the vein, it's all lost. Bevel up, point down. Prevent clogs with cold water. Men know this. It's like washing blood from panties. Men don't know this. Excuse me. It's like washing blood from panties. <laughs> it's like mom taught us. There are many ways to talk about the feel-good. V lives outside the realm of metaphor right down a ways under the bridge. 
She proclaims out of thin air that she is bi. She says the most beautiful woman she's ever been with was named Cecilia, a white girl with blonde ringlets and green eyes. I finger-popped her, she says. I got on top and rode her until we came. We both cried. She looks at me softly, sincerely, with a sappy, closed-mouthed smile. You're pretty, she says. Part of witnessing is simultaneous non-reaction and a quick search for recognition of self. Put it in the poem, I say. My body, a shadow to run from. V got so thin she is almost invisible, nothing to grab onto. How many times I've passed a person on the street with the same edgelessness and seen something other than a face, scrambled, and yet the evidence stands. Same two eyes as mine, nostrils, lips, the hard line of chin, understanding, an obsession of humans. Love, the essence of being alive, connection, understanding, transcendence from understanding. Flesh, just the suitcase. Mm. Ooh, that was... I'm like, fun is not the right word for that piece. That was fun to revisit. <laughs> but it was satisfying to, was to go back there. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for publishing me. Yeah, I love... And it means nothing. Oh, I mean, it means everything. And nothing. That's what I was just about to say. And everything we said at first. So that's what I'm saying. Exploding that whole concept. You're welcome. But it means a lot to me personally. And to me. Yes. We well, I want to say thank you, yeah. of course, for letting us come mm -hmm. and talk about capitalism and collectivity and philosophy and how we'd sell out for Oprah in a second mm -hmm. <laughs> and all of the things. I always really love getting to hear Eli talk so articulately about these things and my brain starts going can you hear that in the headphones mm -hmm. better than my crunching of crackers and cheese i can't believe you do that but not crunch it upsets uh. me <laughs> yeah i mean so thank, thank you, you. It, it's it's so great to have spaces for these dialogues and i think it's to kind of have it be a little a little open-ended is also very nice and to have the opportunity to have it happen with work you know i think so frequently to bring it all the way back to the beginning, you know, so frequently we divide these conversations, right? It's like, here's a reading or here's a conversation, right? Mm -hmm. But the two things are inextricable, right? Like everything that we were talking about is in these poems and, yeah. and these poems and the experience of writing them reflects back on everything we were talking about. So, you know, I think it's important to have these things happen together. And so thank you for giving us the opportunity to do that. Yeah, do the shit. Thank well, we you. We already knew that. Glad to hear it. Uh, seriously, because uh, some people some people have seemed a little t taken aback by the lack of structure. But I, I like it. I like it a lot. You have the right people at the table for that. that yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I do. Sometimes I do think it is just about like who's here. Yeah. You know? Because if you can have a conversation, you can have a conversation. Kids are used to structuring space, though, too, because we're both educators. Yeah. Like We've spent yeah. a lot of time. Like I mean, anyone who's taught... Like, I've spent a lot of time with dead space, you know? Like, people often say to me, they're like, oh, you seem so, like, chill on stage. I'm like, listen, I've been teaching freshmen, college freshmen, for, like, 15 years. You know how often I have to just, like, spend an entire hour and a half just, like, talking? Because no one is making me full teeth, so. Yeah. Yeah. Teaching will, teaching will help with stage fright. I highly, I oh. highly recommend for anyone. 200%. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. Cool. Thanks, Katie. Oh, yeah, of Thanks, course. Guys. Yeah, thank you guys for coming. This is... This has been great. Okay, that's it for today's episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review on whichever platform you're listening. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Animal Riot Press or through our website, animalriotpress.com. 
This has been the 20th episode of the Animal Riot Podcast with your hosts, Brian Birnbaum, and featuring Kate Smeisner and Eli, a.k.a. Linda Silva Johnson. Transcripts for our deaf and hard of hearing animals are provided by Jonathan Kay, and we are produced by me, Katie Rainey. See you later, you filthy animals. Belly.